Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America. A vulnerable young woman goes missing. The main suspect is found dead in mysterious circumstances. Will the disappearance of Jamie Fraley ever be solved? Welcome to episode 19 of They Walk Among America. A joint production between the Law and Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. On April 9th, 2008, Kim Fraley's phone rang. Her daughter Jamie's care provider asked if she had heard from the 22-year-old. Jamie Fraley lived in Gastonia, North Carolina. She had missed an appointment the previous morning, and she was not answering her phone or her front door. When hearing this information, her mother's stomach dropped. Kim's daughter had not been feeling well the last time they spoke, at around midnight on April 8th. Jamie had been to the hospital twice that day, suffering from stomach pains and bouts of vomiting. She had experienced health issues her entire life. Jamie's birth in 1986 was traumatic. She was not breathing for some time, and after she was resuscitated, the doctors were not optimistic about her future. Nevertheless, Jamie defied the odds although she grew up with health issues and developmental challenges. Jamie Fraley was dependent on those around her for support. She was unable to drive and was reliant on her mother for transport to take Jamie to and from her appointments. When Jamie was a teenager, she was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and anxiety although she did not take her prescribed medication. When Jamie turned 21, she was assigned a healthcare provider by the Social Security Administration. She ultimately moved to a place she could call her own. By the late 2000s, 
Jamie matured and began to take her mental health seriously and was responding well to medication. She seemed to be managing and was planning on gaining even more independence. Although Jamie did not finish high school, she had set her sights on a career. She enrolled at Gaston College to get her GED. Her end goal was to become a drug counsellor. Jamie was staunchly against drug use, but she had a soft spot for people suffering from addiction issues, wanting to dedicate her life to helping them. Her aspirations had come from her experience with several friends who struggled with drug addiction. As Jamie's mother Kim said, she was very trusting, too trusting. I told her, you can't save the world. If someone needed a place to stay off drugs, she would let them in. She had the biggest heart, a heart of gold. Jamie had met Ricky Simons Jr. a couple of years earlier. His father was a maintenance worker at the apartment complex where Jamie lived. The couple fell madly in love and shared an apartment at the Cooperfield Complex on Lowell Bethesda Road in Gastonia. They planned on getting married, and initially Jamie's family were delighted. But Ricky had a lengthy criminal history. After he was convicted of felony larceny in early 2007, he was sentenced to 15 months in prison. Jamie was determined to wait for him on the outside and believed he would change once he was back home with her. She wrote to him every single day from January 2007 to April 2008. Then suddenly, the letters stopped. Jamie had spoken with her family on April 7th and said that she had been to the emergency room at Gaston Memorial Hospital. Jamie was told she had stomach flu. She was sent home with a prescription for the pain. Jamie had regularly looked after a dog for family friend Kim Springer, and when Springer dropped off the dog, she could see how unwell Jamie was. Springer offered to hand Jamie's prescription in at the pharmacy for Jamie to collect, which Jamie agreed to. After spending hours vomiting and in pain, Jamie eventually asked a neighbour to bring her back to the emergency room. After being dropped off, Jamie was told there would be a long wait to see a doctor. She felt too unwell to sit in the waiting area any longer, so she arranged for a friend to bring her back home. Jamie called her mother just after midnight and told her that she was feeling very sick and was worried that she had something more serious than stomach flu. Jamie's mother Kim offered to drive over and collect her daughter so she could look after Jamie at home, but Jamie refused. She had an appointment with the Social Security Administration the following morning and she did not want to miss it. As she had been designated with a care provider, Jamie's finances were controlled by the same person who helped her with day-to-day -day activities such as transport to appointments 
and other tasks that Jamie found too challenging to carry out because of her health issues. This appointment was to see if Jamie was ready to look after her own finances. The mother and daughter told each other, I love you, before ending the call. Later that night at around 1.30am, Jamie spoke with a friend in Albemarle, North Carolina. On the call, Jamie had said that she was still not feeling any better and had arranged for someone to bring her back to the hospital. The call ended when Jamie said the person picking her up had arrived. Their vehicle pulled up outside. He's here, she said. Jamie Fraley never arrived at the hospital that night, and she never returned home to her apartment. After Jamie Fraley's care provider could not get in touch with Jamie the next morning and throughout the day, they called her mother and asked what they should do. Kim told them to call the police immediately. She was petrified that Jamie was inside the apartment, too sick to call for help, or worse. Officers arrived to conduct a welfare check. The door to the apartment was locked, and inside they found no sign of forced entry, a struggle, or Jamie. Because Jamie Fraley was an adult, there was not much more the police could do at that time. They said that she had likely gone somewhere and would return soon. Kim knew her daughter better than that, and drove to Gastonia with her sister Stacy and her niece. When they arrived at the apartment, their fear intensified. Jamie must have been very ill. Her bedroom was covered in vomit. Equally as concerning was the fact that Jamie had apparently left her apartment without taking her keys or her purse. The shoes that Jamie wore most often were sitting on her landing, but the shoelaces were missing. Jamie's loved ones called the police again and asked them to check through the house once more. As they waited for the police to let them know what the next step was, they tried to call Jamie's mobile phone. It rang out over and over again until eventually someone answered. It was a man. He said he had just found the device on the ground next to some cables he was repairing on South New Hope Road, around two miles from Jamie's apartment. When the police retrieved the phone, they noticed that it was scuffed, as if it had been thrown on the road. It was then Jamie Fraley was officially listed as a missing person. Jamie was very petite. She was described as standing at approximately 4 feet 9 inches tall and weighing around 90 pounds. She looked younger than her years and had long blonde hair and brown eyes. Jamie's family were at a loss as to where she could be or what could have happened to her. She was not the type of person to just up and leave without informing anybody where she was going or without keeping in touch. Jamie would wait for her fiancé Ricky to call her every day, 
she would never discard her phone or go anywhere without contacting him. Furthermore, all of her essential belongings were found in her locked apartment, and she did not have access to transportation. Jamie Fraley's disappearance was not initially reported in the media until around five days later, when two of her friends approached an employee of the Star newspaper. The two friends were associated with the Potter's House, a ministry in Gastonia that helps women struggling with addiction. One of Jamie's friends who spoke with a reporter for the Star newspaper was Arda Stone, who worked as the office manager for the ministry. Ardeth had known Jamie since she was just a little girl and often let Jamie stay overnight at her home. The last time Ardeth spoke to Jamie was on Easter Monday. Jamie's friend said to the star, Our concern is that I want somebody to find her. She's never done anything like this. With the description of Jamie released to the public, police asked if anybody knew anything about her whereabouts or if they saw somebody who matched Jamie's description to get in contact with them immediately. Sergeant Chris Reynolds would provide basic details about Jamie's disappearance to the public. However, he refused to release any further information other than that Jamie was missing. Three days after Jamie Fraley was last seen, search parties began to scour nearby wooded areas, but could not find any trace of her. Aerial searches and foot patrols were carried out, and canine units were brought in to assist in the investigation. It was as if Jamie Fraley had vanished into thin air. After the police spoke with the last person who had contact with Jamie, a friend in Albemarle. They tried to find out who the man was that supposedly collected Jamie before she disappeared. Officers interviewed Jamie's neighbours, who all said the same thing. She was a nice person. She lived alone, and she often got a lift with her friends, a care provider, or her fiancé's father. Almost three weeks after Jamie Fraley was last seen, her fiancé Ricky was released from prison and began to assist in the search. He was distraught about Jamie's disappearance. They had been planning to get married and begin a new chapter in their lives. Despite numerous searches and investigative leads, the police were no closer to locating Jamie Fraley. Two months after Jamie was reported missing, a bizarre incident turned the case on its head. Kim Springer, the woman who had asked Jamie to dog sit for her, noticed a pungent odour inside of her 2007 Ford Taurus as she drove home from work. After searching the interior of the car and finding nothing to indicate the source of the smell, she thought nothing more of it deciding to leave the problem until the weekend was over. Springer was living in a halfway house in southern Gastonia. On Monday, June 9th, 2008, 
she drove some friends to church in Bradford Heights. The smell from the car seemed to be getting worse, so she decided to check the trunk. Inside, Springer found the decomposing body of her ex-boyfriend, Ricky Simon Sr., Jamie Fraley's future father-in-law. Springer and Simons had met back in 2003 when he worked as a painter for her family's business. At the time, Springer was married, and two years after she met Simons, Springer left her husband and her three children to move in with him. Their relationship was tumultuous, due in part to the fact that then they were both active drug users. After Springer had decided to end the relationship in late 2007, Simons continued to feed his addiction. In mid-2008, the police were monitoring Simons' location and noticed he frequented the area where Springer was living. Officers advised her to seek a protection order, which she did on May 27th. In the weeks that followed... She filed a report for a break into her car in which her purse was stolen. But no one could have foreseen where it would be found. When Ricky Simon Sr.'s body was removed from the trunk of his ex-girlfriend's car, investigators found Springer's missing items beneath Simon's body. They also found a knife. An autopsy would determine that Ricky Simon Sr. had died from hypothermia. He had overheated inside the trunk. Over the weekend that his body was found, the temperature had risen to over 90 degrees Fahrenheit. Police speculated that Simons had most likely climbed into the trunk himself. There were drugs and alcohol in his system. Intoxication and heat exhaustion seemed to explain why Simons had not used the emergency latch to free himself from the trunk of the car. Investigators believed he had likely climbed into the trunk to ambush Springer, then attack her. Friends of Simons came forward to tell the police that he had mentioned, quote, giving Kim the fright of her life. Jamie Fraley had spent a lot of time with Kim Springer and Ricky Simon Sr. when Ricky Jr. was incarcerated. She often tried to get them to seek treatment for their addiction, but she did not manage to convince either of them. Jamie had relied on Simons for support and transport. In fact, he had been the neighbour that drove her to the hospital the second time before she disappeared. Ricky Simon Sr. told the police about this when he was questioned after Jamie went missing. He was cooperative throughout the initial investigation, but officers considered him manipulative and cold. When a trash bag containing items that identified Simon's as the owner was located at the side of the road, two and a half miles from the apartment complex and a mile and a half from where Jamie's cell phone was found, the suspicion surrounding Simon's began to intensify. He was questioned again about the trash bag and Jamie going missing. He denied any involvement in Jamie Fraley's disappearance. 
Simon said that he must have left the trash bag at the side of the road by accident when he pulled over to change a tyre. Simons drove a white panel van. After he refused to take a polygraph examination to eliminate himself from the inquiry, investigators had enough probable cause to obtain a warrant to track his vehicle. This was how his disturbing pattern of movements around Sprenger's home was uncovered, but it did not lead the investigators to Jamie. Ricky Simons Jr. was more angry than upset about his father's death. Speaking with WBTV at the time, Ricky said that he believed his father was involved in Jamie's disappearance. Ricky Simons Jr. stated, First my fiancé goes missing. Then my dad climbs into a trunk and dies. Does that make sense to anybody? I'm going to still hand out flyers. I'm going to still look for her. I'm going to do whatever I got to do. I love her. I'll always love her. Ricky Simon Sr.'s criminal history was concerning to the police. And when Jamie Fraley's family found out about it, they were shocked too. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ricky Simon Sr. had quite a lengthy criminal record, with charges for fraud, larceny and drugs stretching back to the 1980s. Speaking with the Charlotte Observer, Simon's cousin Paul Husky mentioned the changes he had seen over the years, after being relatively close to Simon's in his youth. Husky said, When I did see him later, he was a totally different person. Anything he said was lies. He was an irritable person, like he hated life. He was like the devil. He made enemies everywhere he went. Most of Simon's criminal history could be linked with his drug addiction, but in January 1986, he was charged with murder. After neighbours heard a woman's screams coming from a mobile home in Bessemer City, they immediately called the police. When officers arrived, they found the lifeless body of Donna Miller. She had been beaten and strangled. 
In Donna's mobile home, they had found notes written on church publications. One read, I love Donna. She loved to hurt me. P.S. I will be with you and Daddy. The second note read, Donna killed me, so I killed Donna. The authorities began to look for Donna's ex-boyfriend Ricky Simon Sr., and a couple of hours later Simons was found unconscious at the home of relatives in Dallas, North Carolina. He had attempted to end his life by taking a drug overdose and slashing his wrists. Simons was barely clinging to life when he was found and would be hospitalised for several days. Once he recovered from the suicide attempt, Simons was charged with first-degree murder and ordered to stand trial. Simons would be released on licence, and while awaiting trial in March 1986, a bondsman came to revoke his bail. Simons had been living in the Oakden Motel on Wilkinson Boulevard, when Mac Holmesley knocked on his door and informed Simons that his $10,000 bond was cancelled because he had failed to show up to an arranged court hearing. Simons refused to open the door. He held up a rifle to the window where Holmesley could see it and threatened to take his life. Holmesley later said, he seemed to think he was going to be given a life sentence or put to death in the electric chair. For around 45 minutes, the bondsman attempted to talk Simons into leaving the motel room before finally calling the police. When officers arrived, they tried to persuade Simons to give himself up, but to no avail, so they called for a SWAT team. At around 3am, a team of officers swarmed the motel. They took up various positions surrounding the room, turning off the water and increasing the heating, hoping to force Simons outside. Police negotiator Sergeant Roy House spoke with Simons throughout the night, while his sister and mother were brought in to try and lure him out. At around 10.25am, Simons finally surrendered, under the condition that he be taken to the Mecklenburg County Mental Health Centre for a psychiatric evaluation. During the murder trial, which took place in December of that year, Simon's defence team admitted that he had been the one to kill Donna. They said that he was distraught over the failing relationship and was struggling with money issues, and he was beside himself over his father's death. His counsel claimed that the murder was committed in a moment of passion. According to the defence team, Donna had ordered Simons to move out of their mobile home, and he had done so. He returned a couple of days later allegedly with the intention of trying to rekindle their relationship. An argument had ensued, which turned physical after Donna threatened to call the police. Public defender Chip Clollinger said, My client, in the state he was in, grabbed her by the throat for a short period of time. Ricky Simon Sr. would be convicted of involuntary manslaughter and sentenced to 20 years in prison. 
1992, he was released on good behaviour, having served just six years of his sentence. Fifteen years later, Simons had managed to secure a position as a maintenance worker at an apartment complex, and after his son was imprisoned, Simons had no issue stepping in to support his future daughter-in-law, Jamie Fraley. Jamie knew about Simons' violent past. She had told her cousin Haley around eight months before she vanished. It seemed as though Jamie did not want to believe it. She saw the best in Simons and felt in her heart that everybody had it in them to change. Behind closed doors, however, Simons had not changed at all. He had been in an extremely volatile relationship with Kim Springer. The couple were both addicted to drugs and struggled that Jamie always tried to help them with. They lived just a couple of doors away from the 22-year-old, and quite often when Springer returned home from work, she found Jamie in her apartment with Simons. According to those who knew the family, after Ricky Jr. went to prison, Simons began to act inappropriately with Jamie, often commenting on what she was wearing and staring at her incessantly. This was something that Springer had picked up on. Ultimately, it was the culmination of this inappropriate behaviour and Springer's desire to get clean, which led to the messy breakup between the two. Following the death of Ricky Simon Sr., his son told the police that he had last spoken to his father around two weeks before the discovery was made in the trunk of Springer's car. Ricky Jr. had never been close to his father. When he learned that Simons was the prime suspect in his fiancé's disappearance, he was furious. Ricky Jr.'s father had called his son and told him to meet him at a local Lowe's store. On the phone, Ricky Simons Sr. explained that he knew where Jamie was. However, when Ricky Jr. met his father... Ricky Simon Sr. recounted a bizarre story of how he had seen Jamie in her mother's car. Ricky Jr. later recalled, I got down there and saw he was lying. Jamie's mother Kim was devastated about Simon's death because she knew that any questions she had for him would never be answered. Kim Fraley believed Ricky Simon Sr. knew where her daughter was. In 2008, a fundraiser was held to assist in the search. Dozens of people gathered, followed by a picnic and prayer at Gastonia's Lineberger Park. Texas EquiSearch Inc., a search and recovery team, also assisted in the hunt to find Jamie. Still, despite their best efforts, they came up empty-handed. The television programme America's Most Wanted also featured Jamie Fraley's disappearance, while the Kristen Foundation organised a billboard with Jamie's face emblazoned on the front and information regarding her disappearance be placed on Wilkinson Boulevard in Cramerton. A $10,000 reward for information was offered. 
The Christine Foundation is a non-profit group that assists in searching for missing persons. It was established by Joan Petrusky in 1999, after the 1997 disappearance of Christine Modafferi. The foundation raises money to help families search for their missing loved ones. The months trickled by with no new information, and soon enough it was the one-year anniversary. Kim Fraley said to a reporter for the Charlotte Observer that they were not giving up hope that one day they would see her daughter again. I don't want my daughter to be forgotten, Kim said. You wake up every day and wonder if this is going to be the day. You just have to keep going, and that is what I am doing. Kim was dogged in her determination to bring Jamie home safely. She routinely continued to plaster her daughter's missing person posters throughout the area. At the one-year anniversary, she handed out flyers to the crowd at a Charlotte Checkers game alongside the Kristen Foundation. The foundation stated that they planned on conducting their own search for Jamie, but this time they would be searching in areas that had potentially been missed during the initial search the previous year. In particular, they wanted to explore an area that had been missed the first time around, the Catawba River, approximately six miles east of Jamie's apartment. Shortly after the one-year anniversary passed, the Christian Foundation began the search, which would be conducted by the Search Tactics and Rescue Recovery Team, otherwise known as STAR. They brought along a sonar-equipped boat, sniffer dogs and all-terrain vehicles to assist in the pursuit for Jamie. It was the first private search since Jamie Fraley vanished, and her mother Kim told reporters that she would do anything to find her daughter alive. But if that was not the case, she needed to know one way or another to bring her some closure. Steve Perro, the founder and director of Star, told the Gaston Gazette, What really bothers me about this case is that I think somebody knows something. It looks like a situation where nobody is willing to talk or willing to help. Perro also spoke about how Jamie's family must have felt as the searches were conducted. He said, They're hoping for us to find something and yet hoping that we don't at the same time, I think. Joan Petrusky, the founder of the Christian Foundation, set up a command centre at Ashbrook High School on New Hope Road in Gastonia. She said they were hoping to find some kind of evidence, potentially a piece of clothing or even a body. They searched the areas close to where Jamie's cell phone had been found, where the trash bag connected to Ricky Simon Sr. had been discovered, as well as other areas recommended by the Gaston County Police. Unfortunately, the search was fruitless. The bill aboard in Cramerton also failed to generate any leads. So in February 2010, the Christine Foundation erected another bill aboard. This time it was alongside Interstate 85, 
an expressway that thousands of people travel on daily. Then in September 2010, two teenagers wandered into a closed lithium mine in Kings Mountain to go swimming. The Chemical Foot Mineral Mine Quarry was a popular area for swimmers. However, it was not open to the public and had been abandoned for quite some time. While here, the two teenagers made a gruesome discovery. Human remains. One of the teenagers took a photograph of what they had found, and then when he returned home, he showed it to his mother, who in turn contacted the Kings Mountain Police Department. Officers arrived at the scene and recovered the remains. It was confirmed that they were human. There was no evident signs of trauma, such as gunshot wounds or stab wounds. The remains would be sent to the medical examiner's office for an identification to be made, as well as understanding the cause of death. Some people in the area speculated that the remains could belong to Jamie Fraley. The Chemical Foot Mineral Mine Quarry was around 13 miles east of Jamie's apartment. Some also considered that the bones could have belonged to nine-year-old Asher Degree, who vanished in Fallston in 2000, or 43-year-old Moi Tang, who disappeared near Burns High School in 2008. A couple of weeks later, identification was made. The remains belonged to 23-year-old Dustin Ray Miller, who had been reported missing to the Kings Mountain Police Department in August 2009. While the cause of death could not be determined, police announced that they did not believe that Dustin was the victim of foul play and that his death was most likely an accident or suicide. The months gradually turned to years, and the case of Jamie Fraley's disappearance went cold. Jamie's family continues each year to keep her disappearance in the public eye, hoping that one day their determination could refresh someone's memory. The family have shared their dismay at how the disappearance was initially investigated. In April 2011, the Charlotte Observer ran an article in which the family questioned whether Jamie's cell phone was ever analysed adequately by the police. Authorities said that when they received the cell phone, it had been handled by so many people that it was not considered valuable evidence. In relation to examining the phone, they explained that experts had analysed the phone calls made and received around the time Jamie vanished. Supposedly, nothing of merit was discovered. They did, however, confirm that a number of phone calls were made from Jamie's cell phone at around 4.30am on the night she vanished. None of the calls were picked up, and the police said that the numbers dialed were, quote, most likely those in the phone's list of recent calls. Jamie's aunt Stacy Dennis revealed that when the family contacted private investigators to help work on the disappearance, they were told that the police wouldn't work with them. 
That same year, the family contacted forensic psychologist Maurice Godwin. Godwin was a former police detective turned forensic consultant for defence attorneys. In his line of work, he provides families of missing people with a free reverse geographic profiling service. He would take locations identified by police in the investigation and then use that information to create a computer model to predict where a body could potentially be found. However, Maurice Godwin was denied access to Jamie's case file, with Gaston County District Attorney Lockbell stating, This is an ongoing investigation, and we're not jeopardising it by making public the information we have. We protect our investigation. The family would get assistance in their search from Retta Conley, a retired officer from the Gastonia Police Department who volunteered to help. Several times per week she would meet up with Jamie's mother Kim and other family members. They would trudge through the woodlands and fields of Gaston County. They would interview potential witnesses and continue to hand out flyers with information regarding Jamie's disappearance. The search for Jamie would take them to areas they described as places we probably shouldn't go, but they were determined in seeking justice and closure. Three years would pass since Jamie Fraley vanished, but the search for the family never decreased in momentum. By this point, her family had accepted that she was most likely dead, and they were searching for Jamie's body. Despite this, they still clung to a slight glimmer of hope that they would find something to indicate that she was still alive somewhere. This glimmer of hope was ignited even further when Kim was sent a woman's photograph on a website that listed classified advertisements for female escorts. Kim forwarded on the photograph and information, the authorities were able to track down the woman in the picture. It was not Jamie. Another dead end in a case that was plagued by dead ends. On another occasion, the investigation went to Hong Kong. Police received a phone call from a woman who said that when she was in downtown Hong Kong, she saw a group of women. She told police that one of the women had mouthed the words, Help me before fading into the crowd. The potential witness had been on vacation and when she returned home to the United States, she trawled the internet for missing women. When she came across information about the disappearance of Jamie Fraley, she believed that Jamie was the woman she had seen in Hong Kong. Gaston County Police Chief Joe Ramey passed the tip on to the FBI to be investigated. By all appearances, Jamie had vanished without a trace, and there was every possibility that she could have been abducted and sold into the sex trade. But as the family continued their own investigation into Jamie's disappearance, they kept coming back to Ricky Simon Sr. Jamie Fraley's disappearance was one of three high-profile disappearances in Gaston County over the spring of 2008. Jamie vanished first, 
followed by 20-year-old UNC student Irina Yarmolenko, who was found strangled to death on the banks of the Catawba River in Mount Holly on May 5th. Just the day after Irina's body was found, police discovered the abandoned car that a missing woman, Jennifer Rivkin, had been driving. It was near the Winner's Circle Bar and Grill in West Gastonia. Inside the car, they found Jennifer's purse. Jennifer Rifkin was a 42-year-old divorced mother of one. She owned her own hairstyling business, Jennifer & Co., in her hometown of Kings Mountain. The last time that anybody had seen Jennifer was on May 4th when she visited her mother, Hilda Ramsey, at her home in Bessemer City. Jennifer kissed her mother goodbye and there were no indications that anything was amiss. For several years, Jennifer Rifkin had struggled with drug addiction and some simply dismissed her disappearance as drug-related. As her sister Janet Garvey said, she was a drug addict, but she's still human. We all make mistakes. I'm never going to give up. Never Never, never. The three cases are eerily similar, and as of yet only the case of Irina Yarmolenko is solved. In 2011, Mark Carver was convicted of her murder. Since then, however, questions have been raised. Much of the evidence against Carver was circumstantial evidence as well as touch DNA. According to the police, they don't believe that the three cases are connected. But still, for some, it's a big coincidence for such similar mysteries to occur in the same vicinity in the space of just one month. It's been almost 14 years since Jamie Fraley vanished. Today, she would be a 36-year-old woman, possibly with a family of her own, and living out her dream of helping others as a drug counsellor. Her disappearance completely transformed her mother's life. The stress of the uncertainty left Kim Fraley living on disability benefits, and Stacey Dennis moved in with her sister to help offer support. The relationship she has with her other daughter, Tesla Rush, is used as a mechanism to help keep Kim positive. She said, I went through the depression and the therapy in the doctors. It's not something you get over. It's just the not knowing that's the devastating part. Kim Fraley has kept all of her daughter's belongings and clothing in the attic of her home in the hopes that one day, Jamie will return. Still, Kim knows that the chances of that happening become slimmer and slimmer with each passing day without answers. She said, It gets harder. You feel like you are going to get old and not know what happened. There is one item kept away in the attic that causes Kim particular heartache. A poem that was written by Jamie with a foreboding premonition. It ominously reads in part, Hold your head up high. Be the struggle when I die. With each year that passes, 
Kim Fraley is no less determined to uncover what happened to her oldest daughter than she was on day one. The police still routinely investigate the disappearance, checking out any leads that come in, but each lead only ends in more disappointment. The most widely accepted theory today is that Jamie was killed by Ricky Simon Sr. His own son even believes that his father was somehow involved in the disappearance of Ricky Jr.'s fiancée. Gaston County Police Chief Joe Ramey stated, The main suspect in this case is deceased. We have no other leads that point in any other direction. Despite this theory, the police have said that they could never find concrete evidence that connected Ricky Simon Sr. to Jamie Fraley's disappearance. Police strongly believe that Simons had stolen the key to his former partner's car and climbed into the trunk with the intention of harming or even killing her, but succumbed to the heat before he could carry out his plan. If Ricky Simon Sr. had any answers to what truly happened to Jamie Fraley, he took them to his grave, denying Jamie Fraley's family the closure they so desperately deserve. Anyone with information about the disappearance of Jamie Fraley is asked to contact Gaston County Police in the US on 704-866-3320 or Crime Stoppers at 704-861-8000. This episode was researched and written by Emily G. Thompson and Eileen McFarlane. Editing by Brad Maybe. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law and Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. Thank you for listening.